I don't like microphones, sorry. <laughs> um, my name is Candy Seeger. This is my husband, Greg. This is a kind of an interactive workshop. We're going to go over some case uh, presentations and some ways that we can do a better job. And then quite a few of you have already been on missions trips, so you'll be able to help us figure out some better ways to do it. So this is kind of, if you can get together in groups, um, we have some paperwork to fill out, and we would really appreciate it. It'll make it go a little quicker, and I think we'll get more out of it that way. This is one, uh, she's, this is her information. Do we have anything to, that I can put this on? We don't we need to, if I'm going to use that mic, I need, it needs to come down. Do we have two of these? Way to mute it so I can. It's off right now, whatever you just did. Stragglers as the morning goes, but I, I don't want to get behind because I want to give you guys an opportunity to really kind of bring us all 
brain surgery left, excuse me, I'm losing my voice, which is a bad thing when you're, when you're asked to speak. Uh, my wife, and Candy, uh, and I have been involved in missions for about a decade now, uh, both part-time and full-time. Uh, we worked a couple of years full-time with Mercy Ships International. Uh, our program is really looking in and operating the short-term health programs. Uh, ground programs on, you know, that work with ships. In, in our, what we were trying to do there was really trying to bring, figure out how to use short-term teams in a more strategic way and bring uh, the idea of short-term uh, missions into the big picture. How do we connect short-term missions with some of the, the major health issues in the world and, and, and specifically uh, at the community level. So that's kind of what we want to talk about today. Uh, we, we found an organization uh, called the Christian Health Service Corp. Uh, and the reason we did that uh, was real simple. We saw a lot of problems with the way short-term missions were going. And, and there needs to be a couple organizations out there. Uh, World Medical Mission is, is really the other one that is, is trying to find places to plug medical staff into existing health systems. Because we're going to talk this morning about some of the problems that have occurred in, in, in short-term missions. Uh, but 95% of these problems really can be eliminated by working through and with local health systems or through and with local mission hospitals and health programs. Uh, so that's kind of what we do within the context of the Christian Health Service is, is we, we find uh, functional health systems and we try to connect medical professionals with those functional health systems rather than uh, just kind of the, the typical church uh, you know, team where we go into a church and set up and, and give out medicines. And we're going to talk a little bit about maybe both of those models as we go along. So what does the, the normal medical mission team look like? How many have been on mission teams before? So most of us. Uh, when we, we realize that uh, what happens a lot of times is we show up with a pickup truck load of, of pharmaceuticals. And, uh, and it doesn't always go this way, but a lot of times in typical short-term missions we'll come in with, with a whole bunch of medicines and we'll set up in a church, and then we'll divide all those medicines into Ziploc baggies, and uh, we'll rotate people through, and, and then we feel guilty that we don't we don't want anybody to come through without getting something, so everybody gets a prescription for something. And then mom mom comes in and she sees she's seen by one of the docs or one of those practitioners with uh, you know with her five kids, and each one of these kids is seen, and. Then she takes her kids uh, and gets five prescriptions, maybe maybe three prescriptions each. Okay, and then she takes her kids over to the pharmacy where she stands in front of the pharmacy line, where there's a hundred people behind her, uh, and she's trying to hurt her children. And somebody's trying to give her instructions on how to dose her children with medicine. Does anybody see that that has potential disaster? In so we need to go through and kind of think through how this thing of short-term medical missions is done. 
And if we're going to do a church team kind of mission, how do we do that in a responsible way? So that's really what we're going to look at this morning. And, and I'm going to depend on you guys to kind of come up with some of the answers. Okay, I'm going to say. <clears throat> One thing I've noticed um, when speaking to a lot of nurses here at the convention is that a lot of the nurses have been asked by their churches and other organizations to be the leaders of these teams. How, are any of you leaders of your groups that are going out? Which is great because we are the doers. We're, we are. That's what our positions have become, especially in the hospitals. And doctors are busy and they can't give up their practice time. And nurses, of course, have all the time in the world. So we've been asked to take on this position. Um, and that's why this is really important for everyone here to understand. You know, there's just a lot of dangers out there. And what Greg and I have run into in our biggest challenges is that a lot of the doctors don't want to hear this. Um, so you need to be well prepared. You're going to go out there and you're going to say, okay, we, we've really learned that some of these practices aren't good practices and we want to do it better. And they can be the biggest challenge for you. So just have yourself backed up. Just like, you know, when we make a phone call and say, okay, this patient's on this medication, you know, and this, there's a side effects of it, we're, we're prepared. You're going to need to be prepared, and that's what we're going to give you is some valuable information here that will help you be prepared to back yourself up. And then, first of all, to keep the patient safe. And that's really what this is all about for us. And not everybody wants to hear this information, unfortunately. Um, a lot of medical mission team organizations are, are really funded by the volunteers that they take. So changing practice, it's a big shift, and it takes a long time to begin to shift that. And we're hoping that we continue to talk about these issues. We continue to raise the questions. Not that we have the answers. You know, we don't have any answers. You know, all we can do is really pose the questions and, and continue working as a community to, to develop them. I see medical missions going in a couple different ways. My heart is to see nurses take over more of the community-based care. One thing you have to understand is if you spend any time in the developing community, uh, about uh, the way the, the vast majority of primary care at the community that was provided by registered nurses around the world. Of most registered nurses in, in places like Uganda and South Africa are trained at the practitioner level. That is the nurse role. most of the community level care is what nurses are taught to do because it really is centered around community health education, educating moms how to take better care of their children. Those are things that nurses do. And, and doctors think differently uh, about, those, about those issues. And, and you sometimes have the, 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 the one physician who really understands the concept of what it is to, to, to talk to mom and to make sure mom is educated about her kids and, and, and about medicines and about, you know, general breastfeeding practices and things that they're not going to, you know, spend a lot of time on, whereas nurses typically do a much better job at that. Uh, so I, I really see our role is, in our heart, organizationally, is really trying to get nurses to, to take over a large portion of this, uh, this medical team type of work instead of having it physician driven and 
have it nurse-driven because nurses think at the community level where, where we can really make a difference. And physicians are thinking technologically at the hospital level. So organizationally, what we do is when I get a practitioner, I get a couple docs, I prefer not to put them on a team of, and put them in a functional hospital where they can do no harm and they can really utilize their skills to their best of their ability, but then take the nurses and put nurses in the community level on, on the kind of team programs that we're talking about that can – there's a lot of problems, but they have a lot of promise too. Uh, and there's a lot of things that can be done with short-term teams think in the way of assessment and a lot of things. And it's nursing history. If, if you look at where we came from as nurses – oops, wrong way, sorry – uh, our whole history you gotta is, love this. <laughs> is really about changing communities and it's about building healthier communities. When you look at the foundation of public health and what we call public health as a profession today, it was an outpouching of nursing. Uh, nurses were the ones who went door to door uh, in the tenements of New York City and in Boston and Chicago and, and, and wiped out uh, a lot of the transmittable communicable diseases of, at the turn of the century. So we have a real role to play in, 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 in community-based care in developing communities because a lot of this is basic information passing of not medication passing. I want you to think about, if you've been on a short-term mission, I want you to start thinking about short-term missions with the nursing process of, because I think that's vitally important. Of When we look at a community, we want to say, what kind of assessment needs to be done? What kind of assessment needs to be done before? What kind of assessment needs to be done during? Okay. Because these teams can collect a tremendous amount of data. You go into a community, uh, typically you'll see a 1,000 kids. When we were in Haiti a few weeks ago, we saw 1,600 children. We collected uh, immunization. We have immunization data. We know how many of those kids are immunized. We know the disease prevalence. We know the malnutrition prevalence. We've weighed, measured, and graphed all those kids. We have all that information of... That's a tremendous tool. Now, what you're hearing here is continuum. It doesn't end when you leave. That's what's happening with a lot of short-term missions. And as, um, as we are gaining this knowledge, what we have to realize is that this needs to go on. <clears throat> you, it can be passed on to other teams that are going to the same area. It can be passed on to the medical personnel that live in that area. Um, but it has to continue on, or you can go back yourself um, with another team or the same team. It can't just stop. You can't go for a week, give all this medication out, get all this information, go home and say, that was great, and not do anything with it. Knowledge is accountability. We, now we have this knowledge. We need to utilize it to improve that community. It's how we got better here in the United States. And if you're having a problem connecting with local health systems and local health authorities, you come to them with this with a spreadsheet on on this kind of information, and boy, they're going to pay attention, and and they're going to invite you in, and, and you're going to be a part of what they're doing. 
Uh, if and and that's powerful, you know. Of and it'll help you diagnose some of the problems. Of because it, there's there's a lot you can get from subjective uh, assessment, and and there there's a lot of different assessment models, uh, rapid uh, rapid appraisal, and a lot of different types of models, but they're really subjective in nature. There are very few uh, that are objective in nature. We, uh, the only way you're going to do this is way measure and graph all the kids of, and, and really look at, at what the disease prevalence is in the community. Look at all the pregnant moms and see what, you know, how many high-risk pregnancies they have. You need to, when you start thinking about this in terms of assessment, there's a lot of information you can gather, and it will give you some real key points to focus on. So you need to take tape measures so you can measure their arms. You need to make sure you have an AccuCheck with you at all times that's functional, so you need to take two because we always have one that breaks and lots of strips because these are key components to the evaluations that you're going to be doing in the communities. The tools that we can bring in that are a little cheaper here in the States are those kind of things that you need to make sure you take down, your blood pressure cuffs, of course, and um, thermometers, and you're going to not um, the scales, because not everywhere you go you're going to have access to a scale. We buy a, a, one of the electronic digital scales and just carry it right with us so that we can weigh the babies. And then usually you can find a standing scale, but we always take one just in case. Uh We want to diagnose as well. We want to diagnose what those issues are. But we want to do that so that we can begin a planning process, just like the nursing process. We want to be able to uh, to really begin to plan our next visit or how we can fit this information in with another NGO or a partner in order to you know, address those issues. The implementation is, is the challenge part. Okay. We all know when you take a bunch of people into a place where they've never been and ask them to do something they've never done before, it can be really complicated. Uh, but we really advocate a health fair model uh, for, for short-term missions. And health fairs are something I think most nurses are familiar with. Uh, but we haven't really exported that yet. We've exported a lot of medicines, but we haven't exported the idea of, of community health fairs. So if you're going to do short-term missions, probably the most effective one, the most effective model I think you can adapt would be a community health fair where, you know, where we can set up teaching stations or you can, you can figure out how to put all of the health education within the context of the primary care. You can still do primary care, but it, the medicine in pharmacy really shouldn't be the focus. It should be... We should be more focused on community education and health education than we should be pharmacy. I'm just thinking of a time, you know, because when we first started this, you think, oh, how are we going to teach it? What are we going to teach these people, you know? And you think of the nursing process. I actually would like to get rid of that nursing process word on there. I've been a nurse almost 26 years, and it's like it's real, and we're supposed to be doing it, but it's not really how we do it. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it does, this does work. In a simple case in point, we went to a little community in Honduras, and everybody had scabies. 
Everybody had scabies. So we decided, you know, first day, well, we have to do some teaching. So we did some hardcore teaching. Everybody, you know, got the medication. They were taught how to get rid of it, how to keep their clothes, you know, put them out to dry. You know, they have limited resources. You have to know the resources when you're doing your assessment in that community. You need to know, do they have electric? Do they have running water? Are they drinking the water out of the local creek where the animals are bathing and doing whatever they do in there? You need to know your resources. So we did really hardcore teaching with this group. We went back a year later. I didn't see one case of scabies. So it works. Little things, one step at a time. Um, those are the basic things. You can always teach them about water. You can always teach them about skin diseases. You can always teach them about um, parasites. I have mental pause and I lose words. <laughs> Sorry. So... Um, you know, it can be done, and it does work. That's the neat thing. When you go back and you see your hard work, you know, you're thinking, oh, they'll never get it. They're not going to remember. If you tell enough of them, believe you me, they talk to each other a lot, and it will get through to all of them. Obviously, as we gather this information, we want to come back and we want to evaluate. So we can set, we can continue to set plans. So it's a never-ending cycle. But if you think about applying that at the community level, it's, it's a very effective way to improve of how we do, how we do medical missions. I want to talk, you know, we gave an hour on this yesterday, but I want to just touch on a couple of these things briefly because they're very important. Of World Health Organization has four general health education interventions that have been proven to reduce child mortality. Uh, care-seeking behaviors, that's something we need to teach on. Mom needs to know when to seek care for her children. Nutrition, maternal and child. There's a lot of uh, resources available out there in, in book form and, and otherwise in handouts and things that you can teach of mom, even in resource-poor communities, how to improve nutrition. Uh, breastfeeding practices are huge. I mean, if you read the stats on breastfeeding, improving breastfeeding practices, they say between 800,000 and 1.2 million babies could be saved, children could be saved a year just by improving breastfeeding practices. So that, that's a huge area that we need to focus on. Moms need to know that they have to exclusively breastfeed for, for six months. And that's not always easy within their socioeconomic condition. So, you know, mom may be forced to go work in the fields down the road. Uh, and, and she may be leaving the baby in the care of a five- or six-year-old in, you know, at, at the house. So we need to, to take time and, and learn their life circumstance so we can walk alongside them and really minister to them. And, and you, know, they're, you know, some of the communities, and sometimes it's a, being a facilitator. You know, if the community doesn't have a breastfeeding co-op or, or some of the other things that, that are often happen at the community level, you may want to begin to think about how to uh, get the community together and get community involvement in some of these things that are going to need to happen. That's why the community assessment is key, because you need to know who your community leaders are. You can have these great ideas, but if you don't know who to take them to and who's going to make them happen, and as you're there working, you see that, and you can always ask, but you need to be doing your community assessments beforehand so you know who your leaders are so that you can take this information to them and help them um, distribute it to the people that will be teaching in that area. We gave you guys a handout on... Uh community assessment. I think everybody's yeah. got one. Uh, Did anybody not a, get it? That's a good tool. Uh, it's just a rough tool. Uh, we've used that one. There, there are other models of that out there. 
But that's kind of the core information you really need to know before you try to work in a community because you want to know what resources are available. You know, uh, if, if you're going to weigh, measure, and graph all the kids and you find, you know, you, you find 30 children that are, you know, severely or at least moderately malnourished and need to be in a feeding program, how are you going to facilitate that for them? Those are things that you want to know of, you know, we, we take something called Neri Mamba, or we did the, into Haiti, that was just basically peanut butter and vitamin mix. You can get the, you know, we have everybody bring a jar of peanut butter. You'll save more lives, you know, with peanut butter sometimes than you will. Take about 60 uh, grams of peanut butter, you can put it in like a urine cup size container, and they get one tablespoon a day, and you'll, you'll beef a kid up on that pretty quick. Uh, but there's a lot of things that, little, little tricks you can learn as you go along. But ultimately, you really know, need to know what resources are, are in or near or how far they are from that community so that you can help connect uh, people to those resources. The other thing, uh, home management of diarrhea is vitally important. And uh, number four, malaria prevention in high, uh, high malaria prevalence areas. You can get all these guidelines come out of a program called Integrated Management of Childhood Illness. This is the book? That's the handbook. Uh, well used, you can see. <laughs> there's also a chart booklet that's color-coded. In, in that color-coding triage system, it, 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 there, in the back, there's actually the paperwork you use for children. And you, you can look through this book and, and go follow the color code system, and it'll pretty much tell you what absolutely has to be referred to an inpatient, what can be treated at the community level, and kind of the basics of community health and what you know, what can be done to treat them at the community level. On our website, if you go to our website, uh, there is a, uh, if you look down on the menu side, there's a, it says IMCI training program. You can click on that. You can download the whole program. We put it on there just to get the information out there. It's an interactive program. It's going to come down zipped, and then you'll have to open it. Uh, but it's probably probably about 6 to 12 hours worth of interactive tutorial work on practice in developing communities, and when we send anybody out, we make sure that they complete that that program before we take them into a community, because you really need to know those guidelines before you can practice out there. The great thing about the IMCI for us as nurses is it tells us when we need to go to the next step, when they need to see a doctor. You know, um, we are put in positions out there that we're examining people. Um, I've actually heard rumors that some of the nurses are doing surgery and uh, Sutures and please don't do that. That's not in our capabilities. Um, if it's an emergency you don't crisis, you haven't been trained. yeah, you just can't do that. Um, and if somebody asks you to do it, uh, we're going to have to say no to that one. It, it's just you've got a you can be sued from another country, or you could be put in jail. We have case presentations that doctors have been put in jail because they didn't. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They didn't seek. Credentialing through the yeah for, they didn't. The, so the just because your license is good in the United States does not mean that it's good in another country. No, you need to know that before yeah, you that's go a point there. That you really you know not all countries require nurses who practice in their country to be credentialed, but many of them do. You know you go to Kenya, you go to some of these countries, and of uh, you know you're practicing without a license if you practice nursing in that country without having been credentialed properly. Uh, that's a biggie for physicians. They do it all the time, just set up and, and start providing care. But nobody's 
nobody's run their credentials through the proper channels. And if something happens, uh, it, it's, you know, I, we've, we have one case presentation where a surgeon had a bad outcome with, you know, uh, Malignant hyperthermia. Yeah, malignant hyperthermia, and uh, you know they put they put the surgeon and the anesthesia provider in jail, and they got out eventually, but it wasn't a good situation. Real let me, quick, let's go. Let to me the, just uh, tell. If you would pick up our flyer, it has the um, website on it. That's and that way you'll have that. It's a great. There are so many links to educational stuff on there. Just even if you open it up for that, that please do that. You can get the IMCI. It's a well worth read. It took me a long time to get through it because I'm a mom. I homeschool. I babysit my four-year-old grandson. I work. You know, we all have lives. <laughs> but, you know, especially if you're going on these trips, you need to see that information. And the key point of it is is you will be able to actually almost look at the child and not even touch it and know, okay, we need to find a pro- local provider to make sure this child is well taken care of. And that's key in your trips. Okay. Uh, next, WHO recommends five general prevention and treatment interventions uh, that have also been proven to reduce child mortality. I'm sure two of them which you probably know, which are immunizations of, and anti-illness prophylaxis or you know, parasite prophylaxis. Those two things of most medical teams, the immunizations, you can be involved with, uh, but my suggestion is is you need to be plugged in with a, a community health system. You can't buy immunizations at a reasonable rate. But all, all health systems in every country have access to immunizations. The problem is, is that oftentimes if you come into a community that none of the kids are immunized, there's, there's a few challenges there. Cold chain is probably the biggest breakdown there in the sense that they need to keep those vaccines refrigerated at the end point, all the way to the end point of distribution and until they're, they're, until they're given. And in some communities, that's extremely difficult. So if you go into a community and you assess all the kids and you realize that only 3 or 5% of these kids are immunized, that's a, a very powerful tool for you to go back to the health system in that community and say, look, you know, how can we help you overcome this problem? Because we know that those hospitals and health systems have access to immunizations from their government. Uh, but it's oftentimes just getting them to where they're needed. And sometimes a health team can, can really help facilitate that process. Parasite prophylaxis, remember kids typically in developing communities get 50 to 70% of the daily required caloric intake for normal growth and development. Uh, you add parasites into that, you're going to decrease that another 20 to 30%. That's how these kids get malnourished. So anything you can do in regard to that is helpful. The last three you probably do not know. That's because they're part of the WHO uh, IMCI guidelines. They are uh, very important. Vitamin A supplementation. It's not what you think in the way of vitamin A. WHO recommends that all children in developing communities receive, you know, that are at all undernourished, uh, which is all kids almost in developing communities. I mean, there's a rare exception to that. But uh, these kids need 100,000 units of vitamin A every six months. That's the standard supplementation. If they're six months to 12 months, they get 200,000 units, international units of vitamin A, if they are 12 months to five years. 
That's 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 a dose that's incomprehensible to most. We can't do that in tablets. Let me tell you, <laughs> it just doesn't work. Yeah, there's a, li- a liquid emulsified vitamin A. You can buy it on you can buy it on the internet. It's twenty thousand international units per drop, so it you know it breaks down pretty easy to give to kids. And uh, it's but you you have to know that you're documenting this and you're connecting that information. And whoever is in the local health system there needs to know that you've given this to these kids. Because they're really only supposed to get it every six months, so you don't want them getting redosed. There is a caveat to that: if they're if they're sick and they're you know and they're really sick and they've got diarrhea, sometimes they'll they'll go ahead and redose them with vitamin A during their sickness, because vitamin A has been shown to decrease child mortality in these communities by 23 percent. So it, it's vitally important part of what we do. Uh, the other thing is zinc supplementation. We give zinc supplementation. You can get the dosages off off the training program for any child that has diarrhea. And you know, so those are a couple things that you know we don't normally practice, and and we probably should be practicing iron supplementation. Also, kids that uh, have you know palmar power are, are one quick assessment. There's also if you go to our website under education uh, resources, there's a program. Uh, there's an organization called TALC linked there. TALC is Teaching Aids at Low Cost. It's T-A-L-C. It's out of the um, United Kingdom. They're, uh, they have uh, hemoglobin strips, too. That'll give you a, a rough ballpark you know, from a finger stick of hemoglobin if you want to get that, that extensive. But iron supplementation and the dosages on that are also within the program. Okay. Talk about a subject that I'm, where we've been preaching to the medical mission community for a long time, uh, and I'm thanking God that it's finally taking hold a little bit. Safety standards don't change with international boundaries. Safety standards that exist here exist in every developing country you go to. That means that uh, medications can only be dispensed in child safe child-resistant containers. Can't dispense medicines in Ziploc baggies. Drug dealers give medicines in Ziploc baggies, not medical professionals. So we, we need to think of, these are cheap, and you can buy them of, if, you're, if you're having trouble finding where to get them, of, e- email me, and I'll, I'll send you a number of links of places you can buy them cheap. $100 worth of, of, of bottles, one duffel bag full of medicine bottles, and you'll have you know, you'll have more than enough you, than you'll need, and you know, it, and it'll, it'll keep kids safe, and that's kind of our heart. The other thing is, is that the pharmacy is oftentimes a place where we put non-licensed personnel to kind of help out, and, you know, in these medical teams, and that's something that we want to get away from. Of at least, you know, maybe having them as runners from the pharmacy or, or something that would be more appropriate, but. Non-licensed people should not be filling prescriptions. Technically, it should be a pharmacist. If a pharmacist isn't available, it should be a registered nurse or somebody who has uh, a significant amount. Really, it should be a nurse or pharmacist. You know, of the other option is to have the practitioner fill them themselves. Um, we put this practice into um, works the last time we went, and we used all of these suggestions, and it works amazingly. We thought, oh, this is going to take forever. We're not going to be able to get through. We're not going to see everybody we want to saw. We saw more people than we normally do, 
and it, and everybody, we felt so much better. We did so much more education, and it was safer. I'm just going to go through this real quick. Um, we're going to follow these instructions. Um, these are WHO standards and guidelines. Number one, we're going to determine the appropriate drugs and dosage for the child's age or weight. On our last trip, we took vitamins, albendazole, and vitamins, and albendazole. And that's about all we took. We took a few antibiotics, and that was it. Just because, you know, you're going to get that ear infection. And the other thing that we ended up buying quite a bit of was medication for malaria. They had a malarial outbreak in that area. You can usually buy most of the drugs that you need there very cheap, and then it helps their economy too. Tell the mother the reason for giving the drug to the child. Of course, we want to know why. How many of you, when you go to the pharmacy, they say, would you like to talk to the pharmacist? And you're, no, I know why. But these, these folks do not know why. Demonstrate how to measure a dose. Watch the mother practice measuring a dose by herself right then and there. She's going to give that first dose. Ask the mother to give the first dose to her child. Then you can give her guidelines. How many times do little kids just spit it right back out at you? We can help her learn how to give that medication so we know that that child is going to get the medication. Explain carefully how to give the drug, then label and package the drug in their language is helpful. Um, if more than one drug will be given, collect, count, and package each drug separately and explain that all the tablets or syrup must be used to the finish the course of the treatment, even if the child gets better. Check the mother's understanding before she leaves the clinic. We actually have her repeat everything back to us so that we know she understands it. Um, and then we must instruct the mother on safety of medication storage. They, you know, I mean, I can't even imagine. We used to give medicines out in Ziploc bags, and they took it home and laid it on whatever they had. You know, I just can't fathom yeah, what could have happened. That, it, that's vitally important because you got to remember that if you're giving medicines in Ziploc baggies, mom's taking them home to a one-room, dirt-floor house most times, and there is nowhere to store those medicines away from that child. WHO says that 125 children die of toxic ingestions in developing communities every year, and a large portion of those are pharmaceutical That's a day, right? A day. A day. 125 uh, kids 125 a day. A day from toxic ingestions and primarily from pharmaceuticals. I, I shudder to think of how many of those are, are, you know, Christian medical teams may be part of. Uh, and, and I can tell you, I, I don't have time to tell you the story because I want you guys to get to this, but I, uh, you mm-hmm. know. You know, I spent an ambulance ride through the mountains of Central America trying with a piece of IV tubing down a four-year-old's nose to their stomach, pumping charcoal down. And I can tell you that toxic ingestions happen, and you don't want to let this happen on your medical team. It's not worth it. For $100, you can buy plenty of medicine bottles, and don't let anybody tell you different because it's, it's too vitally important. That actually was gasoline, not medicine, but it, that's, it was just one of those deals. We were at the right place, and the guy, we were able to get that child to the hospital on enough time to, to save them. Um, the other thing is, is you do need to teach them how to open and close the bottles. They have never seen this before, most of them, so they struggle. <laughs> it's kind of cute. <laughs> uh, let's move on so we can get to yeah, let's... letting you guys go through these case studies. Now, if you're kind of separated from uh, everyone, can you just kind of pull together? We're going to do some case studies, let you guys talk about this. Let you talk about your experiences and some things that, you know, my first trip I went and I thought, oh, 
we're wonderful. This was great. Look at all the medicine we gave out. Then I came home and I started thinking about it, like I go home after forgetting to give something and report and call back and say, but, you know, um, think about those things that you did that you just didn't feel good about or just were kind of troubling to you. Share those. Please share those. And if you've got some great ones, please let us know what they are so we can share with other folks and we can improve the process. We want to ask ourselves really in these case presentations specifically what happened and then why did it happen. And I gave you guys a handout on, uh, on this kind of process and how applying that thought process. How do we come up with some solutions for this? Uh, and we want you guys to come up with some, uh, some ideas on how to, uh, how, to, how to fix these problems. Because, you know, we don't have all the answers, and, and nobody does. But ideally, as a community, when we begin to put our heads together and really, really look at some of the problems, I think we can, we're better as a community to come up with some of the answers. So kind of going through that, that process format, answer some of these questions as a group, and then uh, and we'll give you guys probably about 10 to 15 minutes to do that, and then we'll... Uh, and then we'll have you guys give us your answers. We have about two minutes to finish up, so um, we can kind of get your feedback on this. That would be great. Okay. We're gonna uh, we're gonna say time's up. Unfortunately, I was thinking we had it until nine o'clock, but I think we're technically done at ten till. So we may go a little bit over. But I kind of wanted to just get your guys' input. I thought, I'm sorry, we didn't give you enough time to do these. We probably should have started around 20 after, but we went a little over and presented it's some. Me, honey, I talk too much. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> This is case presentation one that we put up there on the board. And, I'm going to uh, through it real quick so everyone knows what's going on. A general medical team was serving a community in Honduras. Maria, 29-year-old mother of five, arrived at the clinic pharmacy to receive her medication after having her entire family seen by one of the physicians. Maria had three prescriptions for herself, and each child received prescriptions for parasite medications and vitamins. Then they had some sick ones, so they got some more. I'm going to just skim through it. Uh, so it ends up she goes to the pharmacy, she's 29, she's got a 12-year-old, 6-year-old, and 6-month-old, and they all got medication for fevers, Tylenol. She mixed up the doses, gave the 6-month-old the 6-year-old's dose, ended up the baby died a week later, and went through liver failure. True story, it really happened. So that's how important it is that we know that they understand that medication. So, alright. Uh, you guys did case one, right? Can you tell us just some ideas you had on, we'll go through assessment plan, implementation, evaluation, we'll just kind of walk around it. Anything that really stuck out on it? Do you have a spokesperson? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's busy, so we can <laughs> 
Teaching one to one is really the really the biggie, and that's that's really what WHO is trying to get across to to, uh, to any providers is that you need to take one it has to be a provider giving the instructions, and two it has to be an area that mom is going to be able to to listen and and to be able to demonstrate that back. So typically, you can either have the provider go to the pharmacy and get the meds and take them back to the exam room and teach and give the meds, or you can arrange a private pharmacy distribution area, but you can't just give mom prescriptions and send her to the pharmacy. I guess that's maybe the probably the biggest thing we can do. I guess the only other thing that we had to add was maybe do um, the, have her demonstrate knowledge and maybe get the first dose for all the kids. That's perfect. That's exactly what we need to be doing. Do you have a question? I'm I sorry. do have a question. When you're seeing 400 patients a day, how are you, you know, one-on-one? And it's chaotic. Well, maybe you shouldn't be seeing 400 patients a day, I guess, is the, the key. The, you know, the, we, we, limit, we limit the number by, by usually, uh, we go population specific. And you can do this and you can think it through in a, in a lot of ways, but we say we're only going to see kids zero to five in pregnant moms. That's the way we do it. But, you know, it doesn't matter what population groups you choose to focus on. You can choose to focus on, like, kind of a women's health fair or a child health fair. Or, you know, or you can see the whole community, but you have to know that you can only see X number a day, and you have to be able to, you can either give out tickets in advance or whatever the situation is through the local health system. It's hard to figure out your process. But you've got to limit it because when the whole community shows up, and the whole community will show up because you're like the circus that came to town, of, you know, you've got to figure out who your sick people are and how do you see the, the sick ones. And, you know, 90% of the people that show up at, at a lot of these are just want free medicines. So it's tough to figure out a system in advance to work with either the local church, missionaries, or health system to kind of limit your numbers that you're going to be able to see geographically and with with the number of folks that you have in your, your outreach. 
with that comes along triage, especially as nurses. We need to go out there and go through that line several times a day to make sure that we are pulling in the sickest kids. We have one case presentation that has a very poor outcome because no triage was done. We realize the other side. if you need to go, yeah, if you need to go, that's okay. Here and try a couple over here. This is case presentation you did number two, and this is about a um, uh, leaving medications in a community. You cannot do that. You have to make sure that you leave them with someone, and that's what this case presentation is about. That you, uh, they left the medications with an unlicensed professional, and that they gave it to people and to give directions, and someone died from it. So what? Um, we just said, first of all, in the assessment, we should have figured out just um, what high school was in that area and that kind of thing, but also we just make sure that we had all the time to do it because they were already exposed to the year. Um, so make sure that the medication is left with somebody who knows what they're for and how to use them and how to treat them. That's great. And the other thing to remember is you need to know what expiration dates are good in that country. In the Dominican, you can't go in with um, meds that are a year out. Less than a year out. So you could be stopped with everything right as um, when you go in the country. I'm really losing my strength. Any ideas for you guys? For us, it's over because we should be contacted on the